Not long ago, the then president of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary published a book about what he called hinge moments. These moments in life that we stack a lot of significance, importance up on top of these moments in life where if we make a certain decision, it will lead us in a trajectory headed one way, another decision leads us another in all of it, sort of laden with this importance and significance of which way we might go, these hinge moments in life. You have them, I have them, perhaps you're facing one today, sitting in the room thinking about this decision in life that could send you off on a completely different path or trajectory than you thought otherwise. It doesn't take much of convincing from my end to convince you that hinge moments are significant and important in your life and in mine. And we find in Scripture that hinge moments are significant as well. And we see that is particularly true as we continue in our series on the book of Matthew as we finally, after ages and ages, near the end of the book of Matthew, reach Matthew 27. And we see in Matthew 27 what is perhaps the most significant Hitch moment in all of scripture, a decision one way or the other, an event that happens that means everything, and hear this, everything for us. So if you have a copy of scripture, would you turn with me to the book of Matthew? We'll do two parts here. So we're going to turn to the book of Matthew, but we'll also spend some time in Psalm 22. So if you want to put a placeholder, a finger, a Bible marker in Psalm 22 and hold that there, we're going to come back around to Psalm 22. If you don't own a copy of the Bible, we have some available at the church. If you don't have one with you today, there's one available underneath the seat in front of you. You're welcome to use that. If you'd like to take one home with you, there's a table in the back of the room. You'll see a sign on your way out that says free Bibles. We would love to give one to you. If you're brand new to reading the Bible, as you turn there to Psalms and Matthew, the larger numbers you'll find there, chapter numbers, the smaller numbers or verses, be in Psalm 22, and it will also be starting out in the majority of our time in Matthew 27. We'll be in verses 32 through 61. Matthew 27, 32 through 61. So if you'll read along silently as I read our passage aloud. I gave you time to get there. I need to take a moment for myself. Matthew 27, verse 32. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, They compelled this man to carry his, Jesus' cross. When they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put this charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him, for he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. 
Verse 45, now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And in the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and he yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs were open. Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe. And said, this, truly this was the Son of God. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given him. And Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut from the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there. They were sitting opposite the tomb. Our emphasis and main point from this passage today is straightforward. From our text, we see that we are to believe in the Lord Jesus who suffered to take away the sins of the world, that we are to believe in the Lord Jesus who suffered to take away the sins of the world. As it happens, perhaps due to poor timing, but perhaps in God's good timing, we get a bit of Easter here at the beginning of July. And we are thrilled to talk about these events here in Matthew 27 and what it means to believe in the Lord Jesus who suffered in this way to free us from the burden of our sins. So this morning, in these events surrounding the death of Jesus and Jesus' death itself, we want to take a look at both what happened, take a look at the events themselves, and we want to consider this morning what it all meant, what it means for us today. So this is an exercise then in reading and interpreting our Bibles. We have a detailed account of historical, actual events that occurred that we read about here. And yet, those events mean something within a broader narrative, a bigger story that God, is un- that God is unfolding and telling, one we often refer to as redemptive history. In all of history, these events that we see recorded in Scripture here are hurtling toward a uh, more ultimate end. It's laden with meaning and significance, and so we'll use our Bibles this morning to shed light on this deeper meaning. And we'll consider what a right response is to the events that we read about here in Matthew 27. And so we'll look at the text in three parts. First, we'll see the rotten fruit of unbelief. The rotten fruit of unbelief. And we'll see this in verses 32 through 44. 32 through 44. Second, we'll see in 45 through 54, the necessary conditions for true belief. Necessary conditions for true belief. And lastly, in 55 through 61, we'll see early examples of, of faithful followers, some early examples of faithful followers in 55 through 61. 
So first, we see the rotten fruit of unbelief, verses 32 through 44. So having just read it, we see that these verses, 32 through 44, recount Jesus' actual crucifixion. A few of the events that immediately surround it. We see a man by the name of Simon, who is compelled by the crowds there to carry Jesus' cross for him. And historically, in this instance, what we understand is that someone in Jesus' predicament, sentenced to die in the way that Jesus is sentenced to die, would then carry the crossbeam of his own cross to the place of his execution. But understanding what Jesus has been through to this point, talking last week of the flogging he endured, the insults, the mockery, perhaps on account of his exhaustion, at this point, someone has been brought along now, compelled to help Jesus carry his own cross to the place of his execution. And we see in the text that they arrive at this place called Golgotha. They arrive at Golgotha, the place of the skull. In traditional Christian hymns or perhaps in Christian literature, you will also hear the term Calvary to describe this same place. Calvary, Golgotha, same place. And it's here at Calvary, at Golgotha, that Jesus now, having been arrested, having been accused of blasphemy, tried as a criminal, now sentenced to die, it's here at Calvary that he'll be hung on a wooden cross to die. And before the cross is erected, in verse 34, the soldiers there offer him something to drink. The text indicates that the drink offered him is a bit of wine mixed with gall. And we see here an allusion to at least a few Old Testament passages. But we know practically too and understand practically that this drink is often given to sort of dull the senses of one who is set to be executed in this way or something as serious as crucifixion. This mixture, this concoction, this drink is now given to Jesus to help dull his senses to what is about to occur. How fitting then that as drink is put to Jesus' lips that he tastes it and turns it away. He knows full well what is ahead of him. He will embrace his destiny fully aware of what's transpiring in front of him and what's transpiring spiritually. Jesus, as we've demonstrated from the book of Matthew over and over and over again, Jesus knew why he came. He knows why he's here. He's going to embrace it fully, seeing it through, resolving to finish the task at hand. After this, we see in Matthew's account that they crucify Jesus. We think it's striking that in Matthew's particular account, he saves us many of the details about that particular event. But what we understand from Jesus' crucifixion this is that his hands and his feet are now nailed to the two wooden beams and the cross is now hoisted upright. They lift Jesus up. And Matthew avoids some of the details of this account, but often a number of factors contribute to the death of one being crucified in this way. More often than not, one suffers from collapsed lungs and passes away then of suffocation. This is the gruesomeness of the death of Jesus. It's a reality that is stark in the text and that we need to face as we grapple with the reality of it. And we note this account is striking because as Jesus hung there on the cross to die, as he's hanging there, Matthew tends to focus not on the details of what's occurring with Jesus himself, but we see in the passage here that Matthew focuses on what's happening around the cross, what's happening in the minds, perhaps in the hearts of those who are watching Jesus suffer. This is where the account focuses, and this is where we'll focus today. Matthew focuses on what's occurring around the cross. And he records that the soldiers act from a sort of cruel kind of indifference to it all. You see this. Jesus is hanging on the cross, dying a sinner's death. And in verse 35, the soldiers around him begin divvying up his garments. 
passing out his clothes to one another, casting lots to decide who will get what. And they hang over his head this sign that says, King of Jews, mocking his claim to be the King of Jews. Attention we looked at in last week's passage. Two other criminals are hung there as well, identified here in the text as thieves or robbers, one on Jesus' left, one on his right, sort of an ode to the governmental, the religious leader's perception of who Jesus is. You're not unlike any other criminal in our day, thus you'll suffer like them. And the crowds we see at this point are persistent in their mocking. They're persistent and they're mocking. But I want you to pay attention this morning, 39 and following, I want you to pay attention to, to what undergirds their marking, mocking. What's motivating their jokes? What's the baseline for the reason they're mocking Jesus at this point? So let's read in 39 and following. And those who passed by derided him. Wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him for he said, I am the son of God, says the robbers there who were crucified with him, reviled him in the same way. So what's undergirding this type of mockery? The soldiers there remember Jesus's words that he will tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days. We see Jesus's words to this effect in John chapter two. And yet they don't realize that Jesus wasn't talking about the physical structure of the temple. He was referring to his own body. Someone who would do something as offensive and honestly as miraculous as tearing down the entire temple and rebuilding it. Surely a man who claims to could do that, he could do that, can save himself from this predicament. This is the content of their mockery. Likewise, with the claim to be the king of Israel, they say in 41, 43, if he trusts God, if he truly is the son of God, then certainly he could save himself. If he was who he claims to be, this would all be over. They urge him time and again, we see in the text, to bring himself down from the cross. And yet, in doing so, they are completely unaware that their hope and the great hope of the entire world is secured for as long as Jesus remains tethered. Come down from the cross, unaware that Jesus being tethered there is the very thing that could set them free. What's at the root of their mockery? It's at the root of challenging these claims. At the base of these men's mockery is unbelief. And we see here the rotten fruit of unbelief as they murder Jesus. They don't believe the things he has said. Now they're going to do away with him. They don't believe these claims of Jesus concerning his kingship, his resurrection, his identity as the son of God. They don't believe any of it. It's unbelief. They don't believe that he is the Messiah, the one who has come to save sinners and to reconcile sinners to God unbelief. The crowds don't believe, and they're certainly, we see here, not passive in their unbelief or indifferent either. It's not the kind of unbelief where you sort of just disagree with something and leave it alone. They hurl insults, and they continue mocking. They continue coming at Jesus. We see once more in the book of Matthew a particular kind of unbelief, don't we? This sort being more antagonistic, 
See, the account here bears witness to a particular way of living in disbelief or in skepticism concerning Jesus and the claims he makes. So on the one side, you might have a disbelieving person, a skeptic, who in good faith asks good questions, seeks to understand and listens to learn, has a conversation, even if they ultimately disagree. If that's where we end up, it's fine, but I'll ask the questions anyway. And yet in the text, we don't see this kind of good-natured disagreement, but a kind of antagonism, a more biting, critical posture toward Jesus and the faith claims of Christianity that are emerging in real time. And yet we know too from our vantage that in their antagonism and in their ignorance, being a part of that, that the crowds here are completely unaware also that they are significant signposts and plot points along the way as God is unfolding and telling this beautiful, glorious story of redemption for the whole world. Their plot points along the way. Wonder of all wonders, several among these mockers are also key candidates for the grace of God. We'll see a beautiful picture of this reality in a few moments in the text. For some here today in this room with us, Perhaps one of these forms of skepticism or doubt is similar to your posture toward Christianity, towards settings like this and people like this, towards the church in general. Perhaps you identify strongly with the claims of these leaders, the questions of these leaders, whether the specific claims of Jesus or perhaps other questions like them, perhaps not as antagonistic but seeking to learn asking better questions, seeking to understand the nuances of the Christian faith. You might ask, what are the specific claims Jesus makes and why? Why do Christians believe that the Bible is true? Why, as we look at it today, would an innocent man come to die in this way, such a cruel death? And what do I, as one whom the Bible calls a sinner, stand to benefit or gain from it? These may be questions that you have. We welcome and we frequently engage in conversations around those types of questions here. I want to remind you again and again that we welcome those types of conversations, that we welcome those types of questions. We welcome you to be here, whether good-natured or adamantly opposed. As those in the room who follow Jesus, you profess to be a follower of Jesus, let's remain fascinated, fascinated by our neighbor's stories by our neighbors' backgrounds, the reasons they have for believing differently than we do, even as we are compelled to share with them this glorious, beautiful truth that we've found in the person and work of Jesus. In our text today, we'll see the centurion and those around him later, and in the gospel accounts with the invitation to one of the prisoners who's hanging there beside Jesus, we'll see that time and time again, and hear this, throughout Scripture, we are reminded that even the most hardened skeptic the one most deep-set in their unbelief, the one with seemingly nothing that warrants the gaze of Jesus, that person is not, after all, beyond the love and transformative grace that God extends to us through the death and the resurrection of his Son. You see, our ignorance and our sinfulness and a bit of irony, it actually makes us qualified. We become candidates for mercy. We stand in the way to be beneficiaries of God's grace. It's what brings us to the foot of the cross. It's why these men are standing where they are. They're sinful men in need of the man who hangs there. 
And the text helps us see God's grace at work, and we see this as we continue in verses 45 through 54, and this is what I've called point number two, the necessary conditions for true belief. The necessary conditions for true belief. So I'm going to read 45 through 54. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once, once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe. And they said, truly, this was the Son of God. We see here the necessary conditions for true belief. We see the conditions that will surround one coming to faith, coming to this inherent knowing what Jesus' death has, has been about and is about. We see in the beginning of this section of the passage that darkness falls over the land temporarily. So this is a sure sign if darkness comes temporarily and then it is light again, that there is something different going on. Darkness falls over the land temporarily. Something is afoot that is out of the ordinary. And Jesus utters this cry from the cross, usually referred to as his cry of dereliction or his cry of abandonment. Because of the agony that Jesus is in, some in the crowd mishear him and they think he is calling on Elijah, a reference to the great Old Testament prophet who did not suffer a natural death, but the Old Testament records was swept up into a whirlwind. And who at this point, some believe, can perform miraculous deeds because of that. Perhaps he's calling on Elijah to rescue him. One onlooker in this section of the passage, perhaps out of compassion for Jesus, brings him something to drink while others stand back and wait to see if Elijah will come. Will Elijah come to rescue? From our vantage, we know that Jesus won't here be rescued. From our vantage, we know it's because Jesus' death, his subsequent resurrection, these events actually are the rescue. He's not coming down off the cross because the cross plays this pivotal point, this hinge moment in all of Scripture. It's necessary. It's needed. He's not going to be rescued because he is the rescue. And we get a keen sense from the rest of Scripture of all that's actually entailed in Jesus' cry here too as he hangs there. So many scholars and a host of others have spent a lot of ink and a lot of digital ink on trying to explain Jesus' words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I want to point out just three things this morning as we consider this part of the passage and then move on. As we seek to interpret and explain what Jesus meant and feeling forsaken by God, here's what we should keep in mind. First, We should keep in mind that Jesus' words here, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When we attempt to describe what Jesus means here, we want to be careful not to indicate that there is any substantial or actual rend or tear or separation between God the Father and God the Son. 
There's no separation between God the Father and God the Son that is substantial. There's no rend in the Trinity. Trinity doesn't break apart here. It's not what's occurring. So there's no rend in the Trinity. Second, as we consider what Jesus means here, we want Scripture to help us interpret Scripture. So when I want to know what something in Scripture means, the very first place I go looking is to see if the other parts of Scripture have said anything about it. This is kind of our default position. I'm confused by this verse. Does the rest of the Bible have anything to say about it? We want Scripture to interpret Scripture. And so this is where Psalm 22 comes into play. If you've kept your finger there or a bookmark there, turn back with me to Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is credited to David as its author, and it appears to address a particularly difficult stretch of David's life. But we find also that the content within Psalm 22, as we'll see, contains some of the most perplexing content in all of Scripture. So it purportedly describes David's experiences, but it also contains striking similarities to the things we are reading in Matthew chapter 27. Case in point. Remember Jesus' cry from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let's look at Psalm 22, just verse 1. My God, my God, David writes, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning. Skip down and look at verses 6 through 8. But I am a worm and not a man, David writes, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. See if you note any similarities here. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Skip down once more to verses 14 through 18 and note the similarities. 14 through 18, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me and hear this, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and they gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing, they cast lots. Difficult not to see the similarities, right? And the question we have is, did these things actually happen to David? There's no recollection or no account of it in Scripture of all that we know that David has been through. There's no recollection or account that he has suffered these exact things. So what do we make of it? It's possible he did, and those events aren't recounted, maybe. It's possible, and we have a a precedent for this in Scripture, it's possible that David is actually writing Psalm 22 aware of the Messiah coming and what he will endure and experience. And so Peter gives us precedent for this in Acts chapter chapter 2 and talks about how David writes knowingly of the Savior who is to come. But if that's not the case either, at the very least... We can confidently say this morning that owing to Scripture's dual authorship, that is, that it has a human author who's penning these words, 
And as he's penning these words, he is inspired by the Holy Spirit that God is writing this story because of Scripture's dual authorship, that God is telling a bigger story here. And that Psalm 22 provides for us a type or an example, example, exemplary language describing the Savior who is to come. This seems so much to be the case that this is a type or exemplary language. This seems so much to be the case that Jesus actually makes use of some of its wording as he hangs there on the cross. He's employing this concept and idea brought from Psalm 22. It's pointing to Jesus. And the great glory for us is that we find this over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament. That it may speak to a near-term fulfillment or something that's being fulfilled in its context But often, often, often the scriptures are speaking a better word of the Savior who is to come. Lastly, on this phrase, noting that there is no rend in the Trinity and with Psalm 22 sort of helping us along, we want to note back in Matthew 27, we want to grant that there is actual abandonment here. That Jesus was abandoned. In what way was Jesus abandoned? He was abandoned to death at the hands of evil men. That's what happened in the events. And so for Jesus to feel abandoned and to feel left over to them in this moment is natural according to his human nature. According to Jesus' human nature, he experiences every ounce of emotion and pain one could feel having been abandoned to death at the hands of these sinful men. It's the inescapable reality of it all. The loneliness, the despair, the agony, all these things that Jesus feels, it's encompassed in his cry. Why have you forsaken me? He feels abandoned. He senses that he is alone. And the reason why it's important that we grasp this and feel the weight of it is because Jesus' experiences here are not disconnected, are not severed in any way from our own. That the pain that he feels, the suffering that he feels means something for you and me. It means something for you and me. In fact, reconciling those who were separated from God, who felt abandoned, who feel far away, reconciling those people back to God is the very reason Jesus came. And that's good news for you and for me. Though he suffered the real pangs of death at a real moment in real history, the reason why Jesus suffered in that way means everything for us. It means everything for us. If we were to continue reading in Psalm 22, which we won't do this morning, but we would note a key change, that it's not all doom and gloom, that it's not all purely descriptive of Jesus dying, but it begins to speak a better song of redemption and hope is brought through Jesus for the whole world. So with the whole whole psalm in mind, Jesus is now uttering these words from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Knowing reconciliation to God is made possible through his death. And this is what the cry and Jesus's, or this is what the cross and Jesus's cry are ultimately about. So as we pin down and focus on an event in history, we consider the chronology here. Let's focus on its meaning as well. So if we were to look at Matthew 27 and see the events that occur, that Jesus dies on the cross, how do we derive meaning from that? Again, we let Scripture tell us. This morning, we want to derive meaning from Scripture concerning Jesus' death on the cross. The question is, why did Jesus die? Why did Jesus die? And here are several reasons to consider. 
If you're a note taker, this part will frustrate you because for the sake of time, I'm going to move, these, uh, move through these at a quick pace, but we can get together later. Why did Jesus die? He died, number one, to bear the curse of sin that once weighed down upon us. Galatians 3.13 tells us that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law and he became a curse for us. He bore the curse of sin that once weighed down upon us. Number two, Jesus died to absorb or take on the wrath of God that you and I deserved. Romans 3.25 says that God put forth Christ as a propitiation or to appease his wrath by Jesus' blood that is to be received by faith. Number three, Jesus died so that we could be free from condemnation. And this is what probably you and I are best at coming in here this morning, is condemning ourselves. You need no other accuser. Apart from Christ, sinful as we are, we don't need anyone else telling us how bad we are. We can see the scripture and see that we are condemned in our sin and we know it. We feel it in our bones. But Jesus came to free us from that condemnation. In Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Number four, Jesus came and he died to bring us near to God. To bring us near to God. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ died for, the sin, for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. No longer are we separated, alienated from him. We are brought near to God because of Jesus' death. This is why it's important. This is the picture we see in verse 51 as the curtain is being torn in two. This massive curtain in the temple that separates the innermost recesses of the temple, the holiest of holy places in the temple from the common man. This curtain that sections that part off from anyone who wishes to enter upon Jesus' death is now torn in two and access is now granted. We come into life within the presence of God through Jesus' death. It's an amazing reality. Jesus died to bring us near to God. Number five, Jesus died to make enemies his friends. Man, that's good news. Romans 5, 8, that God shows his love for us in that, hear this, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not when we were prettied up, not when we were more presentable, not when we had it all together, not when we had no sin to confess, but as we were confessing sin, Christ died for sinners. He made enemies his friends. Romans 5.10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. The last two, and I want you to lean in with me here this morning. I know we've covered a lot. But the reason Jesus died, number six, the reason Jesus died is so that we wouldn't have to. So that we wouldn't have to. He is, as we spoke of last week, our substitutionary sacrifice. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, reminds us that the one who knew no sin, the spotless one, became sin for us so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. Christ exchanges his perfect record for our sin-marred existence. Matt Smethurst writes of it this way, that on the cross, Jesus was treated as if he had lived my sinful life. That's how Jesus is treated so that I might be treated as if I lived his righteous life. And this beautiful exchange is at the heart of our faith. That Jesus took our sin upon himself and exchanged his righteousness in return. The last reason that we have here, and not the last reason in toad, but the one I 
decided to land on here is pretty straightforward. Lean in with me here. The reason that Jesus died is because he loves us. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 1 John 4.10, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So we begin to see in at least these seven reasons, in at least these seven reasons, plus many more we could list, the meaning behind the events that we see unfolding in Matthew 27. The events that have been prophesied for about long ago throughout the Old Testament, the events that receive now further explanation in the New Testament, the truths, the meaning that undergirds these events, the truths were to be believed upon. People understood them and they were to be believed upon then. And they, listen, they are to be believed upon now. They are to be believed upon now. The events at Calvary, God's offer of grace to us warrants a response from everyone. As confirmation that this is actually what's occurring in these events here in Matthew 27, we see major instances of other miraculous events occurring, some that have significant meanings within the scope of redemptive history. As mentioned, the text indicates that when Jesus died, the temple curtain tore in two. Within all of redemptive history, this holiest of holy sections in the temple has been shut off from commoners. And in Jesus' death, we're all now welcomed into the presence of God. Massive symbol emerging from the scriptures here. We see in the text that an earthquake occurred and the once dead bodies of believers who had gone before emerged from their resting places. This was, and probably understating the matter, altogether uncommon. It's different. It's different and it warrants a response. We see too in 54 that the eyes of the centurion's heart and the eyes of the hearts of those around him are opened as all of these events occur. And listen at his proclamation. 54, when the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe, blown away. And this is what they said. Amidst all the doubt, the unbelief, everything that was in the milieu around them, this is what they said, that truly, this is the Son of God. This man is who he says he is. So what are the necessary conditions for true belief? to believe that this man is who he says he is. Some conditions, necessary conditions for true belief. One is that God has created us with a distinct purpose in mind, that we are all created to glorify God. We are all created to glorify God. Another necessary condition for true belief is that to believe that we are incapable of doing so because of our sin. That sin has plagued this world since Genesis 3 and that we are wrapped up in it, given over to it such that because of our sin, your sin, my sin, our personal sin, we cannot glorify God as we ought to. A third condition for true belief is that God fixed the problem. A condition for true belief is that God sent a rescuer, and the rescuer is the Son of God. He lived a perfect life. He died a sinner's death. He was raised from the dead. He ascended into heaven, and he is coming again. God has fixed the problem. Praise God that you being left in your sin and me being left in mine is not the end of our stories. In Christ, God the Son, we have a deliverer 
who has set us free from the penalty we owed for sin. Instead of punishment, we receive mercy. Instead of getting what we deserve, we receive grace. Because Jesus was then raised from the dead, instead of death, we have eternal life and the reward of fellowship with our Heavenly Father. This is amazing. We're now able to fulfill God's intended purpose for our lives both here and now. And the last condition, we see this in the centurion and his crowd that follows him. The last condition is that God grants faith to believe. That God grants faith for you to believe, for me to believe. This is the language the Bible uses when it speaks of the need to become born again. And then we become a new creation. God grants faith for us to believe. This is what occurs for the centurion when he utters those words, comes to the realization that Jesus is the Son of God. All that's left for the believing person to do is now confess that belief. Scripture tells us that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is the essence of what it means to begin to follow Jesus. I didn't warn you, but we're spending most all of our time on that point. So here at the end of our passage, point number three, we see in our text... A few early examples of faithful followers of Jesus. A few early examples of faithful followers of Jesus. In 51 through 54, or 55, sorry, through 61, the text records this group of women who have now followed Jesus throughout his earthly ministry, who have borne witness to everything he has done who have heard many of the things he said and who are now privy to witnessing his crucifixion and then go on to witness his resurrection or his burial and then his resurrection also. He recounts the story of a guy named Joseph who takes Jesus' dead body under his care, wraps it in a cloth, prepares it for burial, puts it in the tomb and slides the stone which will be moved away as we preach future passages in coming weeks. We see in the text, at the end of the text, these committed faithful followers. And there are few examples that are more intimate examples than these of people who follow Jesus, who latch hold to the truths that we're talking about today. We especially want to note, as the text does, that many women were gathered there, sort of countercultural in that time, countercultural for Matthew to include in the narrative. Many women are crowded around now observing these events. The text indicates that they had spent their prior days ministering to him. This means that they witnessed many of the aspects of his earthly ministry. We've discussed these over the last several weeks. And these women have been following along, seeing Jesus move and act the way he does. Friend Rebecca McLaughlin writes that they had followed him for years. When he had gone through cities and villages proclaiming the kingdom of God, they had been with him. They'd seen him heal and teach and cast out demons. And now... These women see him nailed to a cross. Now these women see him nailed to a cross, eviscerated in the public gaze. They have a wide, full perspective. The women's vantage aids our own. Rebecca goes on to write, How do we see Jesus through the eyes of these women who watched him being crucified? We see him as the one they love. Broken and mutilated, mocked and despised, we see the sign above his head that read, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. We see the one on whom all of their God-sent faith was penned now to a Roman cross. The women's perspective helps, even improves our own. 
They'd seen everything Jesus had done, had it confirmed over and over again, his identity as the Son of God, and now they watch him come to die. If we kept reading, we would see that they then watch him rise from the dead, and they watch all of these beautiful historical events coalesce into a story of redemption that you and I couldn't scratch the surface of telling if we tried. It's an amazing scene. It's an amazing scene that alleviates us of a million burdens. When we consider ways to respond to this good news, this Easter in July, when we consider what it means to respond, probably if you are a believer in the room, you've heard everything I just said multiple times in your life. Probably the reality. Over and over again, we rehearse these events every March, every April, and yet the value of these events and hearing them once more is beyond comprehension. Believers, if this is a reminder for you, the encouragement as far as application is for you to dig your heels into this truth. To dig your heels into this truth. Christ died for you. Hear this. Christ died for you and not the version of you that's more put together. Christ died for you and not the version that's more presentable. Christ died for the believing you, sitting where you are right now with the issues and problems that you have and the hurdles that you face and the challenges that you have before you, with the sin struggle that you had, Christ died for you. Whatever asterisks or caveats you would tack on to your explanation of why your unlovable do away with them, Christ's blood covers you. And in that, you can take great confidence. Let's preach the gospel to ourselves and seek to apply it. If today, this morning, you're here and you don't consider yourself a follower of Christ, You sense a change occurring in your heart and mind. Know this. You can receive Christ, accept him by faith today, right now. You're beginning to understand the gospel in this way, that you've sinned against God and that Jesus died in your place. If you're beginning to sense that God is drawing you to himself, you can place your faith and your trust in him by confessing your beliefs to God in prayer. As an aside, we would love to know if you were in that spot. Feel free to use a connect card or pull one of us aside at the end of service today. We would love if today was the day that you would have, finally have Jesus.